The Bob Murphy Show, episode 134. you gonna do get ready for another episode of the bob murphy show the podcast promoting free markets free minds and grateful souls it's your source for commentary and interviews conducted by a christian and economist now here's your host bob murphy hey everyone welcome to another episode of the bob murphy show this is going to be another fun one. I am talking with David D. Friedman. Yes, the David Friedman, for those of you who are anarcho-capitalists out there. In case you don't know who he is, let me just mention, uh, I'll just read from his Wikipedia page because this is the most concise uh, description of who he is that I found. So David Director Friedman is an anarcho-capitalist, American economist, physicist, legal scholar, and libertarian theorist. He's known for his textbook writings on microeconomics and the libertarian theory of anarcho-capitalism, which is the subject of his most popular book, The Machinery of Freedom. In addition, he's authored several other books and articles, including Price Theory, Law's Order, Hidden Order, and Future Imperfect. And by the way, folks, I just gave like the main title, although it's not the subtitle. We talk about a lot of stuff in this. Um, I do, in the beginning, ask him about physics because that's not something I hear people talk about. Um, in case you never heard this, his actual degrees, well, hell, I'm continuing to read here from the Wikipedia page. He got his bachelor's from Harvard, but it was in chemistry and physics. And then he got a master's and PhD from Chicago in what? Theoretical physics. In fact, he's joked or boasted that he's never actually taken a formal class in economics or law, and yet that's what he's taught at places and you know academically is is known for. So of course his father is someone you've probably heard of. I deliberately don't bring it up in the interview because you know I figure he's his own guy. He doesn't want to talk about his father, but he does mention his dad's opinion of his anarcho-capitalism later in the interview. If you are interested in that topic. So we talk about a lot of stuff. It's going to be a fun conversation. Without further ado, here is my discussion with David Friedman. Well, David Friedman, welcome to the Bob Murphy Show. Glad to be here. So uh, with somebody that the audience knows, I like to start with their background. Um, one thing I, I know about you is that your actual doctoral degree is in, is in physics, right? Correct. Would you mind just explaining like, what, your, what your dissertation was? Not very easily. I was doing theoretical particle physics, and my mm -hmm. dissertation involved a particular branch of that, which I don't think is still live, uh, in which you were trying to, well, it was, it was referred to as regipole theory, and it had to do with the mathematical structure of the collision matrix. If, if you think about two particles colliding, mm -hmm. one thing that will affect that is to what degree there's a, they can turn into other particles or can combine or whatever. But I guess the real answer is it was a branch of theoretical physics didn't end up going very far, and I abandoned it well before it stopped being done. Okay, so I mean, and this is because I don't. My background is when I was like in junior high, I would tell people when they said, "What do you want to be when you grow up?" I would say a theoretical physicist, and like Richard yep. Feynman was my hero. Yep. You know, I, I liked him. I would read books on special relativity. Yes. So I think one thing is: is it true that like the smartest people go into physics? I don't know if it's true now, 
Okay. One of the multiple reasons that I left was that I thought the circumstances were such that there were too many smart people in physics. Oh, okay. Yeah. I, I remember that it was, that it was an inefficient allocation of human resources, so to speak. It was the fact it was, mm-hmm. it was subsidized. It was sort of high status, fashionable thing to do. Mm-hmm. It was indeed an, a neat and interesting subject, but if you have 10 people working on one problem, you know, nine of them may be superfluous. Okay. Int- yeah, that's interesting. So, but so you're saying at this point you don't know if that's still the case? I don't. I'm not. I haven't been active in physics for a very long time. That basically, mm-hmm. my situation was that when I became a postdoc at the physics department in Columbia, mm-hmm. I was no longer in a place where I was smarter than the people around me, and okay. the people around me were more interested in what they were doing, were more interested in physics mm-hmm. sort of inherently than I was. Right, uh, and I and that meant that they were putting more time and energy and thought into it than I was. Uh, mm-hmm. So I concluded that I was a better economist, which I'd been doing as a hobby, than I was mm-hmm. a physicist, and, and ended up switching fields. Okay, and and so this was you, this was when you were a postdoc. You made that decision. Yes, correct. That's okay. right. That through graduate school, I think I was in a situation where I was smarter than most of the people around me. Uh, mm-hmm. And that was enough, so to speak. Uh, but that wasn't true when, you know, my colleagues were not Feynman, but Feinberg, the guy who invented right. tachyons and other people like that. Right, right. Okay. And it's interesting, the, the, the word choice, you said he invented them, not that he discovered them. Well, we don't know. Nobody's discovered tachyons yet. Okay. So that, that's why I wanted, if you don't mind spending yes. a minute on yep. that. So like, so that, that, that's the reason you, you, you chose that. Tachyons are, are an interesting theoretical mm-hmm. idea that Feinberg right. came up with. To the best of my knowledge, nobody has observed evidence of them. Uh, okay. In an odd way, it's a little bit like Robert Frank in economics. Not exactly, mm-hmm. but in the sense – or even, even in a way Gary Becker in the sense of an interesting theoretical construct – which, which might or might not – Becker is actually a better example that Gary Becker has this very elegant theory of altruism. Mm-hmm. economic tourism. And I think he has correctly worked out a logical way of fitting altruism into ordinary economics. But it's not at all clear that it describes how people actually behave. There's some evidence, I think, some arguments. Mm-hmm. That so Robert Frank figured out a nice way of fitting the fact that human beings care about status into economics. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think it was logically correct. Uh, it may be empirically correct, but I think he's tried to go with it in directions that it doesn't go. I've I had a long exchange with Robert Frank on my blog years ago, mm-hmm. uh, in which it seemed to me he was really too much led by what results he wanted, and not right. enough by the logic of his argument. But it was still a neat argument. Oh, so yeah. If you don't mind pushing just one more on this, so like for example, there's a sense in which at some level. We were only seeing indirect evidence, like like nobody observes an electron. You get what I'm saying, or like string right. theory, or or the the wave particle. Right. Like there's things like that. So do you want to like speak elect- on that? Mm-hmm. Things like electron. You know, there's a sense in which nobody observes anything. Right. Right. Like all you have is sense sense data. You right. know that sense data is sometimes misleading, mm-hmm. but we deduce what the world around us is like by trying to get a consistent picture, consistent with the available sense data, ultimately, and you could imagine uh, getting evidence uh, of tachyons in that sense. And as far as I know, I say I'm, I've been out of mm. the field for a long time. Nobody has. It was still neat to try to think out what would be the logic if you had uh, such such particles. Right. 
So you, would you agree with the following claim? We're pretty sure electrons exist, but we don't know if tachyons exist. Yeah, that would be. Oh, oh, okay. Whereas like maybe some type of, I don't know, Richard Rorty or somebody might not say it that way. I, yeah, I, I'd go even farther. I would say that I think we have reason to think tachyons don't exist. Okay. But, but we could be wrong. And we have right. quite strong reason to believe electrons do exist. We can do all okay. sorts of things which follow from our belief in electrons. Okay. Um, I wondered if you could speak a little bit on the the way that modern, I get by modern, I mean like 20th century or let's say from 1950s onward, economics has proceeded versus physics. Because I remember, um, are you familiar with Emanuel Derman? No. Okay. He's... Um, he was a physicist, you know, trained physicist. I don't know if he was theoretical or, mm. and then he switched over to like mathematical finance or something. And then it worked mm. at, I think, Salomon Brothers or something. No, not some Goldman Sachs, I think. Yeah. But anyway, um, I remember when he in his book, he was explaining how, and he switched over in the 80s, that when he switched from physics to economics, he was surprised because like, like reading like the like articles by guys like Paul Samuelson and guys like mm. that, how they had proofs. And yet, and he knew they were trying to model what they thought physicists were doing, but yet he said, no, in our thing, it wasn't, it wasn't like, like what they were doing was more like a math article as opposed to mm. in physics, it was looser, he was saying, like, mm. you know what I mean? Like it wasn't yeah. like, here's our axioms, here's our, so I'm wondering, yeah. d- does that of course, bring true to you? In a, sense, in a sense, my view of how you do economics is not mm-hmm. by proving theorems. Yeah. Sure. So, yeah, just if that's my my prompt, you go ahead and just riff on right. that. Right. That, that, that <laughs> economics, as I understand the way you do economics, right. is you use your theoretical structure to make plausible conjectures, mm-hmm. to reach conclusions that you have reasons to think are probably true. You then see what the real world implications of those conclusions are, and you try to see if they're true. And if mm-hmm. it turns out the real world implications are not true, you then say, well, maybe I've made a logical mistake. Maybe my argument, arguments in economics are very rarely rigorous, maybe never rigorous. At least I find it very hard to think of any real world proposition, any observable fact about the world, which you can get for, cert- with, for certain from economic theory. That uh, I guess maybe the prettiest example, which I actually came across long after I started saying this has to do with the minimum wage, that I think Jim Buchanan used to say that all economists agree that raising the minimum wage increases the unemployment of low-skilled workers. And he would then say, that's not an empirical statement about economics. That's the definition of economist. (laughs) But he's wrong. Right. Because in fact, first, I could think of a wildly implausible way in which you could have a set of facts such that raising the minimum wage reduced unemployment in unskilled workers. I had mm-hmm. to assume bizarre tastes. I had to assume consumers who really valued knowing that the products they were buying were made by people who made more than the minimum wage. But that's mm-hmm. not impossible. We don't have a good theory of what people value. But in fact, the Carden, I guess Carden Kruger, who did right. this very clever argument, And the argument is theoretically right. It requires an assumption, which is, I think, not very likely, but more likely than mine. Their assumption is basically a monopsonistic labor market. Mm. And they argue, I think, correctly, that if you assume that the market for those workers is a monopsony, a monopoly hirer, then the hirer will have a wage below marginal product for the same reason the monopoly charges the price above marginal cost. 
Mm-hmm. And then if you force the if you use the minimum wage to force it up to hire more workers, not fewer. So I think they're right. I think it's I don't think it describes the real world, but mm-hmm. it does show that even what looks like a perfectly obvious implication of straightforward economics, you can think up some possible real world circumstances in which is false. So that from my standpoint, the appropriate methodological approach is you use your theory to tell you what you think is probably true, but you mm-hmm. then have to look at the evidence to see if it's true. Right. So I guess what's interesting there is I think probably most mainstream type economists who heard that would would agree with you. Or, or do you think not? I hope so. I, I, I think so. I think yeah. I think some of the extreme Austrians would not. But probably at least some people who consider those Austrian would agree. And I think most other economists would agree. But you still get a division of labor. It still makes sense right. to have some people that I remember. I remember I happened to meet Abba Lerner. Uh, mm-hmm. I was giving a talk in Florida very early in my career about what, what, what in fact was ended up being my first published article, which was an economic theory of the size and shape of nations. Mm-hmm. And there was an elderly man in the audience who asked a very good question. I don't remember what it was. And I later discovered it was Abba Lerner. Uh, and mm-hmm. I mentioned this to my father and said that Abba Lerner had a beautifully clear, logical mind, utterly uninterested in facts. <laughs> And I have some sympathy with that. I mean, in a sense, logic is easier to it's easier to to make sense of in your head. You know, facts are messy things. You may get them mm. wrong. The, the logic, you know, you can make a mistake, but logic you can look at and figure out for yourself if it's right. But in that sense, I can certainly see people who find it more interesting to work through the theoretical structure uh, mm. than to look at the facts. On the other hand, Samuelson, I guess maybe you'd say the same thing of Samuelson, the you know, the famous example, as you probably know, is that Samuelson's textbook for, I think, a couple of decades kept right. claiming that the Soviet Union's growth rate was substantially higher than the U.S., mm-hmm. that an estimated date in the future, range of dates, the Soviet GNP would cross the U.S. GNP. Each edition, that date got pushed farther forward. Right. So he had in the book the evidence that he'd been wrong in the previous edition. And he never seems to have noticed, as far as I can tell. Right, right. Well, that's what I was going to ask you is, and, and we maybe can circle back about the Austrians' perspective, but I'm just saying, you know, standard people, you know, the yes. mainstream, you know, top 20 programs, whatever, that I think, yeah, they would agree with what you just what you said in terms of this is how I can, but that's presumably what Samuelson thought he was doing, but that's also what physicists think they're doing. You know, that's yeah. like the scientific yeah. method, the way it's taught in yeah. sixth grade. Yeah. And yet Derman, when he was switching disciplines said he thought that there was a marked difference that, again, he thought Samuelson's articles in particular looked more like geometry yes. as opposed to science. Yeah, well, that, 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 may, that may be right. I think mm-hmm. there's been a tendency for quite a long time, maybe going that back that far, to do too much mathematics in economics. Mm-hmm. And I think of it, uh, Gordon Tulloch used to use the term ornamental mathematics. Mm-hmm. Mathematics, it doesn't really add anything to the theory. It makes it look prettier. And my version of that is to take Ricardo's distinction between the intensive and extensive margin and apply it to scientific research. Then, as you know, for Ricardo, the intensive margin in agriculture is trying to grow more grain on a field where you're already growing grain. And the extensive margin is bringing new land under cultivation. The Mm -hmm. intensive margin in economics is trying to say something new and original about a question that smart people have been thinking about for 100 years which is very hard to do. The extensive margin is finding some new area that economics can be applied to. So that Jim Buchanan 
and Gary Becker were both working the extensive margin, but they were both expanding the area that the economics applied to. And Peter Leeson is a current economist who does that, in my view, a pretty good one. Mm-hmm. But if you're working the intensive margin, in order to get published, you've got to say something new. Right. If you don't really have anything new to say, one way of doing it is to take some relatively sophisticated new mathematical technique, apply it to an old problem and say, look, I've done something original. Mm-hmm. Uh, right, right. And now I, I have to say, I, going back to Gordon Tullock for a moment, there was an exchange he had with somebody else prominent, I don't remember who, where Tullock wrote an article criticizing a book or paper by the other person. And the other person uh, started his response by saying, we've all been impressed by how much Professor Tullock has written. And it's even more impressive to realize he has written so much when he can't read. And he uh-huh. then on to claim that Tullock was misinterpreting uh, the article. And again, I have some sympathy in the sense that I find it more interesting to think out ideas than to read other people's ideas, except when they're really interesting ideas. So right. I wouldn't say that I'm an expert on the present state of economics. There's an awful lot of it I haven't read. Right. Okay. Uh, I've, ne- I've never made a policy of, of reading, say, the American Economic Review, of reading it regularly in any sense. Right. Since you brought up the minimum wage stuff, yep. did you keep tabs on that somewhat? Like, are you familiar no. with like some, okay. I, I, I have not followed the issue. I just, again, I find it easier to remember ideas than facts as it were. And right. I was just, my impression was that the card Kruger piece, the evidence for their thesis was not very strong. Mm-hmm. But what I thought was neat was that they had a, theor- a consistent theoretical article argument, which gave right. the opposite of the conclusion the rest of us reached. Right. Well, on that one, I don't know if, if, if you know enough to be able to comment on this, but my, I can't remember the specifics, but I've seen people plausibly argue or meaning they convinced me at the time that, well, if, if if it were because of monopsony, we would also see these telltale signs X, Y, Z, which we don't see in these industries. And so therefore could, could, could well be right. That is my, Mm -hmm. my basic reaction is that unskilled labor seems one of the least likely places for monopsony because it's not specialized. Right. Right. Yeah. Uh, But so it didn't seem to me that it was likely that they had correctly described the world, but they had correctly mm-hmm. described the, the theoretical structure, so to speak, and that's neat. I mean, right. that's, that's elegant. Uh, just as uh, Ricardo is one of my heroes. Ricardo, insofar as he makes a prediction, well, loosely speaking, the prediction goes back to Malthus's that the average real income of the world, per capita income of the world, can never go up very much. Now, it's Ricardo is less vulnerable to that than Malthus because in Ricardo's version of the iron wage, it depends in part on the tastes of the workers. That if the workers mm-hmm. have luxurious tastes, then the equilibrium has to be higher before they're willing to have enough children to reproduce the working population. And therefore, in principle, Ricardo's theory is consistent with uh, rising, but you wouldn't really expect it. But nonetheless, Ricardo succeeded in inventing general equilibrium theory. He did it with no mathematics beyond arithmetic, which is obviously impossible. And that's a very impressive accomplishment. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm curious on your thoughts. So it, it does seem like there's this interesting phenomenon in, in you know, the we're familiar with economics, where really, really smart people, brilliant theorists, whatever, they build these whole structures, and yet mm-hmm. it does seem like they're missing something, staring them in the face. Again, the, probably the most, the most famous example is Samuelson. You mentioned Abba Lerner. You know, I think a lot of us, when you read him talk about how a socialist community could allocate resources, you know, mm-hmm. back when he was answering Mises and Hayek and yep. the socialist. 
he's clearly a very sharp guy. Yes. But yet it's like he has no common sense or, you know, some man mm. on the street. Like, and, and I can see why an academic would be like, oh, give me a break, you know. But uh, so I'm wondering, is there something? Well, the hardest part, the sense mm. part of that lack of common sense is a useful intellectual trait, namely simplifying a problem down enough so you can solve it. Mm-hmm. And now you may end up getting it wrong. It may turn out that your result is driven by the simplification, not the problem. But the right. real world is a very complicated place. And just as it makes sense to figure out econ- to figure out physics in terms of things moving in frictionless vacuum, for example, if you want right. to do ordinary Newtonian mechanics. So it makes sense to think through economics at some point, ignoring transaction costs, uh, maybe – at some level of the analysis, saying, what if people do such and such and not thinking through, but will it be an interest to do such and such? Because that was an essential mistake Lerner was making, I think, mm-hmm. that, that he, he was, in effect, assuming that you could tell the communist, the socialist bureaucrats to behave in a certain way without making it in the interest of everybody up the pyramid of, of, of authority to actually behave in that way. Right, right. Uh, and that's in a sense the elegant thing about the, the capitalist solution is that it doesn't depend on anybody doing anything because it's good. You know, right, right. Some mm-hmm. people think it's in their interest. It's nice if people are moral as well. But, 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 but as a, in a sense, you, you always have an intellectual division of labor, so to speak. And right. one of the useful skills is thinking through the sort of neat, clean, logical structure of something. Uh, mm-hmm. And I mean, there's a sense. I used to think I understood Coase, mm-hmm. and then I was ended up doing a review of his final book, co-authored with uh, Lingwan, I, I think was his name, on China. And in the course of doing that, I reread all of Coase's stuff, and I concluded that I had really misunderstood the fundamental point of the problem of social cost, because what it ultimately is, is a reductio ad absurdum of economics that is now done. That his basic thesis in both that and his economics of the firm, mm-hmm. something, something of the firm, is that implicit in the way we usually do economics is zero transaction costs. That if there were zero transaction costs, there would be no firms and there would be no externality and, 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 and public good problems. Right. And therefore, he thinks – I saw that as, given Costa's analysis, how you sh- how should you rethink the question of what legal rules should be? And I spend a chapter or two in my law's order before what I'm describing. Uh, I, I wrote an all I wrote an article about Coase a long time ago, and Coase was a colleague of mine at the time. We were both at Chicago, mm-hmm. and Coase's comment on my article was, "You never really understand your ideas until someone else explains them to you." And I suspected that he had his tongue firmly in his cheek, given given Coase, that he was right, speaking right. gently but sarcastically. And mm-hmm. I didn't really understand it. I wasn't sure that that was the correct interpretation, and I think I now do, that I had I tried to do something he thought we shouldn't be trying to do for another 50 years. That, that is to say that Coase's view was – the implications of transaction costs, of the fact that tra- trans- transaction costs matter. We have to mm-hmm. understand much better than we do the logic of that problem, and that ought to be the project now, as it were. And if you understood it, you could then embody that, whereas what I was doing was saying, all right, 
given what Coast has taught us about transaction costs, what does that tell us about what legal rules should be? So that I was trying to solve his problem. And in a sense, I conceded that one couldn't entirely do it. That is, I, I, I said, in effect, in order to do, in order to work through the, the logic that I've just described in this chapter, you need the following information, much of which we don't have. Right. And I think Coase's view was that therefore you first get that information and then you try to work it through, whereas I was interested rather in if you did have the information, how would you use it? So anyway, not sure what that's a diversion on, but it has something to do with, with theory versus real world. And Coase thought right. that you ought to be observing the real world. His, one of the, I think part of what interested him about China, in fact, was that China was developing independently a market system. It wasn't bringing in American economists, even from Chicago, let alone from Harvard, and in fact was much more successful than the Eastern European countries that tried to get expert advice. And that since he thought that it wasn't clear on a theoretical basis what capitalism ought to be like and exactly what was the right way to structure it might be different in different cultures and different circumstances. Mm -hmm. So China was generating data. Uh, right, right. And and I don't know if you've read the book, but it's a very interesting book. No, I haven't. It, it's called, I think, How China Went Capitalist. Okay. And it was co-authored with a Chinese economist mm-hmm. who's still alive. This was the last thing Coase did before he died, about 100 or so. Mm-hmm. And it, 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 it's a fascinating story in which, by his account, what basically happens when Mao dies is that all of the top people are – dedicated socialists. They all believe socialism is a better system. Now that Mao is dead, they can go abroad and look at the rest of the world. And they discover that with the world's best economic system, they are one of the poorest countries in the world. So Mm -hmm. they've got to be doing something wrong. But they also, interestingly enough, among the places they look are places like Yugoslavia. Well, what does Yugoslavia tell you? It tells you there's more than one possible model for socialism. Because Yugoslavia was a sort of one could almost describe Yugoslavia as a capitalist country where the firms were all worker co-ops. And that's an mm-hmm. oversimplification. But it was closer to that than it was to a Stalinist centrally planned system. And it worked better than the Stalinist centrally planned sure. system. Right. So what they said was, all right, socialism is right, but we obviously aren't doing socialism right. Let's experiment. Let's find out. Mm-hmm. And by Coase's account, the major improvements were not things they decided to do. They were things they decided not to suppress so that the privatization of agricultural land, basically by his account, in a couple of different very poor villages where things were going very badly, they switched to a system where each family had its own plot of land. They owed a certain amount of the harvest to the common project, but then they got the rest. And that was illegal. And in one case, it was done by the local communist official not telling his superiors Mm-hmm. One case, it was done essentially by the peasants, not telling the local communist official. In both mm-hmm. cases, it worked very well. Eventually, they went public, and the response of the government was, this is illegal. You're not allowed to do it, but we're not going to punish you. And then the government said, well, in places where the present system is working very badly, you're allowed to experiment with this. And then they said everybody should do it. Okay. And, and that was one of a couple of cases I don't know what the term is that Coase uses, but a couple of cases where what happened was not that the central government says this is how we should change things, but that the central government had enough humility to say we don't know how you should change things. And therefore, if you do something that we think is not the right solution, let's watch and see what happens instead Mm -hmm. of suppressing it. 
Now there was there there was there was at least one exception. There was one change they made, which may very well have contributed to the progress, and that was that they made rules under which the government-owned entities, after they had produced the amount they had to produce for the plan, if they produced more than that, they were allowed to sell it at market rates, and. That meant that the people in the government-owned enterprises had at least some some experience with actual market transactions. It also meant that things outside of the government-owned enterprises could buy inputs from the government-owned enterprises. They had to buy them at a higher price because the exchanges among the government-owned enterprises were at a controlled low price, but they could at least get them. And since they did not have all the disadvantages of being a government-owned enterprise, you had what basic – a different part of what Coase describes is that you had a bunch of what were in effect small firms that were nominally being run by very very local areas of government, that they were basically the residue from the uh, Great Leap Forward. Then in the Great mm-hmm. Leap Forward, lots of people were encouraged to start sort of their own little – government enterprises, as it were, but local government enterprises. So they were, in fact, de facto private firms. And they were not part of the, of the planning system, did not have access to goods at the official prices, but they could get goods at the market prices. And they grew very rapidly. Uh, so the Coast quotes the person who was running things at the time is basically saying, you know, none of us expected this. But we discover that these these little firms are now 10% of our output, something like right, that. Right, right. And again, they didn't try to suppress it. And mm-hmm. similarly, in the cities, there had been a long problem of urban unemployment. And Mao's solution to urban unemployment is you force people to go out to the countryside and become peasants. Uh, the post-Mao government wasn't willing to do that. So what they did instead was to permit very small private firms. That if you had a private firm, I think up to 10 employees, you could you could be, be a private firm in the cities. And those, mm-hmm. again, grew very rapidly. And then if you wanted to be more than 10 firms, what you did was to put a red hat on. You got some local governmental unit to sponsor you so you could officially be part of them and then you could be larger than that. And the other thing that – the other part of that, and this is one where I'm not sure if it was really something that the people in charge of it realized was going to happen or whether – but at least the, the official story was that the way the special economic zones were supposed to work was that the people in charge said, look, we can see the capitalists are doing something right that we're doing wrong because look how much more productive they are, especially comparing Japan to, to China was I think the, the one mm-hmm. that struck them at the time. And that basically – so the theory of the special economic zones was let's have some little experiments in capitalism safely isolated in places that we don't care about. So take mm-hmm. a place that isn't producing much and say within this town, you're allowed to have capitalist institutions and let's watch it. And look, we can get ideas. We can figure out what they're doing right. We can then import those ideas into socialism and we can work better. And the exception swallowed the rule that basically, I think Shaw Men was one of the first ones, as I remember. And it goes from being a village to being a city of 10 million people or so. Uh, mm-hmm. And because it was they, these were working so well, they started allowing more and more special economic zones. And as I say, the exception swallowed the rule, essentially. Mm-hmm. Now, it's possible that that was deliberate, uh, that it was a matter of how some people within the system introduced capitalism without 
objections from other people in the system. It's right, possible right. That, they, that it really was that they really were doing what they said they were doing. Mm-hmm. But anyway, it's a very interesting book. And Kosa's view of how the system was working at the point when he was writing, and I'm not sure how much it's still true, was that you had a sort of a market competition among local governments, that you had a system where if you were running a city or a county or something as a communist official, you knew that you would get promoted if your county was prosperous because the central government wanted economic growth. So you had an incentive to try to make the local rules that would result in economic growth, that you had what were essentially industrial parks where there were two offices, both being provided by the local government. And one of them was an ordinary landlord's office, which was providing electricity and internet connection and stuff like that. And one of them was an office which told you how to interface with the government rules and how do you get permits and so forth and so on. And if you uh, were trying to do this and you observed some other locality was doing very well, you would say, well, what are they doing that we're not doing? Maybe we can copy their ideas. And you thus got a spread of what was, in a sense, well-designed local local government. Now, the part I think Coase may have missed, or he doesn't discuss in that book, I, when I was writing a review of this, I also found a book on, on corruption in modern-day China. Mm-hmm. And it's reasonably clear that if you're that local official, you really have two possible strategies. One of them is to do the best job you can to make your little community grow. Uh, the other is to be corrupt and rake off as much money as you can, and you probably won't get promoted, but you'll get a lot of money now. And there's a choice between those two, and for some people, one of them is optimum and some the other. And there, there is some wonderful, the book on corruption is really a lot of fun because there are some, some wonderful examples of sort of, I don't know quite how to describe it, but elegant uh, scams. That there, okay. well, my, mm-hmm. my, my favorite one, I think, was there was a poor province in China which had a very well-organized, corrupt communist uh, organization. And at the time, there were value-added taxes in China, and the value-added tax did not apply to export goods. And the value-added tax was done at the national level. So what the people in this province did was to create the documentation for creating, paying tax on and exporting goods that never existed, and then collected the refund from the central government for the fact they were exporting those goods. Oh, okay. eventually got caught, which of course is how we know about it. Uh, uh-huh. But it was still sort of, it was the kind of thing which impresses you as just sort of how sort of elegant and brave. It's, it reminded me, there's a, a, a famous quote from uh, a, one of the samurai from Musashi, who was a famous samurai, when fighting one against a hundred, be brave, take prisoners. <laughs> and it's the same kind of arrogance, as it were. Right, uh, right. Uh, it also goes along with H.L. Hunt's line when when Playboy interviewed Hunt and they asked him about his right-wing radio stations, which they assumed he subsidized. And he said, oh, I don't subsidize them. They make money. If this country is worth saving, it's worth saving at a profit. Yeah, yeah, nice. Um, it's ironic that you're bringing that up because literally just last night, my wife and I were, watched a documentary on the fall of the Soviet Union. And if I'm remembering the details... Gorbachev was upset because, you know, he had introduced, you know, Perestroika and Glasnost and, and, and then he went to a meeting of the G7 asking them for a big bailout package in which they refused to give him. And then, you know, he went back empty handed and knew his, his time was limited. And, you know, he, this could be self-serving, but the way he was, you know, and then this documentary was interviewing him after the fact. And he was complaining, saying, I went to the West 
they sent me their experts and they told us how to reform and, you know, move towards capitalism or he probably said a market economy yeah. and it didn't work. And, so, yeah. and I think partly what they did is they liberalized um, competition among the shopkeepers and whatnot, but they kept the prices controlled. So then uh -huh. of course the, sh the shelves all, you know, the food disappeared because yes. no one wants to sell at a loss. Yeah. So I'm, you know, things like that. And you, so I'm wondering, whereas if, if they had gone to the West and said, we, we want to know the state of the art in engineering or in how to build a particle accelerator, yeah. I don't think it would have blown up in their face like that. So is there right. is there any lesson there? Like in terms of something's weird about economics is not a science I mean, the I, way. I mean, Coase's lesson at least, and mm -hmm. I don't know if he's right, but Coase was a very smart guy, uh, mm -hmm. is we don't really know enough to construct a priori an economic system for a particular culture society. And therefore, the best you can do is a sort of a trial and error blundering process, which is what China did. And you try various things. And when things work, you don't suppress them. And when they don't work, you eventually stop trying them and try something else. Um, and that I think Kosa's view, and that, as I say, comes out of what I see as his, his basic argument against what he refers to as blackboard economics. And, you know, he certainly understood black, he understood ordinary price theory, and I don't think he thought it was worthless, but he thought that it didn't tell you enough because of the fact that transaction costs exist. Transaction costs, once, as he showed in those two essays, have a very large effect, that if there were no transaction costs, a whole bunch of things would be different than they are in the real world. That is mm -hmm. the basic, in a sense, the starting point, really, of the, of, 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 of the theory of the firm is that in a world with no transaction costs, you would have no firms because a firm is a set. It, it, it's going back to the calculation controversy. All right? right. If you really take seriously the strong version of the calculation controversy, then coordinating through markets is always superior to coordinating through hierarchy. Well, a firm coordinates through hierarchy internally. Therefore, the firm coordinating by hierarchy ought to always be outcompeted by a bunch of individuals contracting with each other. Mm -hmm. And there's a book by another economist, and I'm now trying to call the book is called Markets and Hierarchies. I'm now forgetting the author, though I know who it is, but I tend to lose names sometimes. And he points out that, in fact, the experiment was done, that there was something in the 19th century called the inside contracting system where you had the equivalent of a firm, but they consisted of a bunch of small firms, maybe in the same building, contracting with each other. Mm -hmm. And it eventually got replaced by somewhat larger organizations where those people were all getting their paycheck from the same person. So that, that Coase's basic argument is that there are costs to market transactions, there are costs to hierarchical systems, and a firm will expand until it reaches the point at which the next expansion is doing something by hierarchy that can be done better through the market. So it was mm -hmm. a Coase was one of these people who going back to the question about sort of mathematical theory, Coase was one of these people who has very brilliant ideas that are very simple. Uh, right, right. And I just one of the things I discovered when I was reading all of Coase's stuff is that the basic core of Coase's argument appears in a talk he gave in his twenties, mm -hmm. which was neat. Well, what's funny too is on that stuff just to try to you know, give an example so that people at home can make sure they, they follow what you're talking about. I remember when I worked at a grocery store, like in high school, I worked in the dairy department. And so we would get all the milk and the creamer and stuff. And then there was a bakery department, you know, down the, you know, walking a hundred yards down the store and they would get 
the creamer from us because they like they would serve coffee and stuff to the, the customers if they wanted to be drinking coffee while they walked around the store or whatever. And they paid us for it. Like in other words, you know, on the you know, the, the pieces of paper, like the, the bakery department paid money to yes. the dairy department. And I remember one of the, the girl, like the, my coworker, we're both, you know, high school kids, was complaining about that, saying, I don't get, we're all for the same company. And of course, me being an econ geek at the time, you know, mm. reading probably your stuff too at that point, mm. you know, I, I understood why you had to do that. So I mean, it's just interesting to even mm. like within the firm. So there are things like that where, but, yes, but yeah, course. the other time it wasn't like, if I ripped up a piece of cardboard or something to write a, on the sign to give that I was charged by my manager for that. Like there were that's things that of course that were just right. quote given to us that we weren't priced yeah, for. That, that's right. You have you, there, there, there are trade-offs between mm. the advantages of decentralization and the advantages of centralization. And I think libertarians often tend to miss that, that, that back when I wrote the first edition of machinery of freedom, mm -hmm. I said some sympathetic things about the idea of an agoric economy. Uh, which is probably a, I, I probably picked up that term from Lefebvre. I'm not sure. Mm -hmm. And in terms of sort of our tastes, it feels better. And in fact, I enjoy more being part of an agoric economy than being an employee. Uh, mm -hmm. That as a speaker and a writer, I sort of like the fact that my books no longer have publishers. Right. That now there are advantages to having a publisher. But on the one way I put it a long time ago in terms of my own my own intuitions, as it were, is I feel better at being paid for a specific thing that I've done and sold to somebody. I feel better at getting payment for giving a speech, say, or for my books than mm -hmm. I do about getting a salary. And the reason to me, I think, is that although as an economist, I know that the salary has some connection with what I produce, that connection is much more indirect, much less intuitive than saying, here, I made something, it's valuable to you, you pay me for it. And mm -hmm. I like to feel I've earned my income, as it were. Uh, right. And therefore, from that standpoint, and one of the neat things that's happened in my lifetime is that you can now self-publish books, and that self-publishing a book really is competitive with publishing it through a publisher. It has right. some disadvantages, but also has some very large advantages. It's a good deal faster. You get a considerably larger fraction of the sales price of the book as, as, as income to you, and you have both the advantage and the disadvantage of only having other people involved to the extent you want them to. You don't have an editor who can say you have to do this or you have to do that. Mm -hmm. On the other hand, you have to find an editor or else you have right. to trust yourself. But I think most of us really can't be trusted to write books without editors at all because we're right. too if we don't see. Now, fortunately, I have my editor in-house. My daughter is a freelance uh, online editor, and she's a pretty good editor. She's edited various of my books for me. Uh, I have to find a cover artist, and in that case, I have the good luck that one of my fans is somebody who's very good at designing covers. In fact, two of my fans are, because I had two different people design covers for me for my books, for my self-published books. Uh, but I don't have to interact with a publisher. Now, interacting with a publisher isn't always a bad thing, that one of my small collection of economics jokes was given to me by the editor of my price theory book. Mm -hmm. So sometimes it's positive. On the other hand, I still remember my first book, Machinery of Freedom, uh, being told by my editor that I couldn't mean that price control caused shortages. I must mean that shortages caused price control. Uh, <laughs> and now, in that case, she didn't get an – I mean, I still put it in the way I wanted it. But, right. but And the other thing that was funny on, on her initial edit is one chapter of Machinery of Freedom is written by Adam Smith. 
It's excerpts from the Wealth of Nations on parts of his comments on education, which mm-hmm. struck me as perceptive and still relevant. And I didn't want to make that obvious. So I don't say until the end of the chapter where it's from. I, I'm, I'm sort of linking it together to make it sound more or less like coherent argument by me. And she tried to edit it for style. Oh, okay. Right, yeah. right here. This is one of the most important books in the history of economics. And she mm-hmm. thinks she can improve how it's written. Right. But I've had better editors since then. Uh, mm-hmm. and I think, but, but anyway, I guess my basic point is that I like the fact that now when I want to write a book, I do it myself, so to speak, rather than having to spend a lot of time and effort trying to find a publisher uh, and discussing with the publisher how to do it and, 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 and so forth. Mm-hmm. Is there something else too? I mean, publishing, my, but, but in general, in terms of somebody like wanting to work for myself versus working for a, a company yes. in your butt. Yep. I think part of it, right, is like, if I'm like, let, let's say my podcast I'm not at the point, but let's say like I got enough donations and contribution mm-hmm. that I could just do that. I'm, it would be, oh, there's several thousand people who contribute. So I don't have to worry. You know, I would have to really anger a lot of them before mm-hmm. I basically got fired. Yes. Whereas if you just got a boss, it's one person's will. Yeah. And if he's in a bad mood or she, yep. you know what I mean? Is yep. there that element to you think? Yeah. No, I think there's no, no, I think people do enjoy mm-hmm. being their own employee. I think that's their own employer. I think that's part of why uh, various uh, things in the new economy, uh, like mm-hmm. the fact that we no longer need taxi cabs, work. Right. One of the interesting puzzles, actually, when I visited China, and actually I'd seen it other places, but especially in China, in the U.S., if you are in a large building selling lots of things, it's called a department store, and the people in there are all working for one employer. In China, if you're in a large building selling lots of things, it might be a department store, but it usually isn't. What it usually is is a whole bunch of little tiny firms all renting space in the same building, and mm-hmm. you'll have three butchers and four clothes sellers and so forth. Mm-hmm. And the question is why? That is, why is it that in some countries the normal arrangement is lots of tiny, lots of tiny firms, and in other countries the normal arrangement is a department store? And I have various – various conjectures about what the trade-offs are between those, because that's, again, a hierarchy versus market kind of question. Right, but right. one answer might be that the market version, you can get your labor cheaper because people enjoy working for themselves and therefore mm-hmm. you have to pay a higher wage to get people to, to be employees instead. Okay, interesting. Yeah, I guess there's probably more uniformity in the quality if it's one f- Firm. Well, I guess not necessarily because you could just roll that all into the A different conditions. explanation is that yeah. the customers don't trust. It's a good deal of trouble to walk from this from this department store to another department store. Whereas if you think that the this butcher is charging a little too much for his meat, well, let's try a couple of other butchers and see. So it may also be believed by the customers and the virtues of competition. Mm-hmm. Uh, and presumably it's probably the that for some reason there aren't very large economies of scale in that in that area. Right. So no, I think I, I I'm not sure if I've got it on my webpage or not, but I have somewhere sort of suggestions to other people about research they should do that I'm not going to do. And one of the projects that some maybe someone has done, I just don't know it, is to investigate around the world where you get each of those two different forms of organization mm-hmm. and to try to form a coherent theory about why because it's an interesting question. Okay. Right. Yeah. Folks, let's take a break from the discussion to explain why you should contribute to The Bob Murphy Show if you haven't yet already. 
I'm telling you guys, I got a lot of stuff that I want to cover. Not just the interviews, great interviews I got lined up, but also some old school material talking about the roots of progressivism, postmodernism, all kinds of stuff that I think is important to understand what the heck is going on right now in U.S. Uh, culture and politics. But, it, you know, my time is limited. And so uh, the more of you who donate, it just means the more time I can devote to the podcast because I'd love to be doing this and nothing else. But we're not quite there yet. I appreciate the contributions that have really been flowing in. I appreciate that a lot. If you haven't yet done so and you're on the fence, go ahead, give it a whirl. Go to bobmurphyshow.com slash contribute. Thanks, everybody. So you mentioned a minute, you know, machinery of freedom. I'm sure just about every one of my listeners knows of that and probably read it at some point. So like how old were you when you realized you were an anarchist? Uh-huh. And do you use that? Is that the term you use no, or do you not like sure. using that term? Uh, okay. that, that's an interesting question. And the answer is I'm reasonably sure I reached that conclusion in college. And I went mm -hmm. to college when I was 16. So okay. it would have been probably sometime 16 to 20 is my guess. Uh, but I really don't I, – I don't clearly enough remember sort of my thoughts at different points. Sure. One way you could check it uh, with a little effort is I was the token libertarian for a magazine called The New Guard, which was a young conservative magazine run by the Young Americans for Freedom, which had both mm -hmm. libertarian and traditionalist people in it. And I had a column called The Radical, and I at least one of those columns described the case for anarcho-capitalism. And I think I started writing that after I graduated from college when I was a graduate student, but I'm not positive. But that would at least give mm -hmm. a latest possible date, uh, but sometime between my late teens and early 20s, I would say. And the particular thing, insofar as there was a single thing that convinced me, it was reading a novel by Heinlein. Okay. That, because my situation before that was that I thought laissez-faire was the right answer in general, but it had to be within a framework of laws provided exogenously, as it were, which mm -hmm. is why you needed a government. And I thought I could prove it. I hadn't actually sort of done a formal proof, but it seemed to me sort of intuitively obvious, as it were. Right. But you couldn't have the structure of laws itself coming out from the from the market system. And in Heinlein's novel, The Moon is a Harsh Mistress, he gives what seemed to me a plausible and internally consistent picture of a society in which the legal system is endogenous. Mm -hmm. And it wasn't my society, obviously. Uh, it doesn't right. tell me it'll work here. But it only takes one counterexample to refute a theorem. Right. So if it was really impossible to have such a system, then there had to be a mistake in the book didn't seem to me it had a mistake in the book. So that got me thinking about the question of what would be the equivalent in my society. And that's what Machinery of Freedom really came out of. Parts of the Machinery of Freedom were the columns I had done for the New Guard rewritten into, a, into chapters. Right, uh, right. Not all of it, much of it was new. So I'm curious, what would you say, because I think for a lot of people who nowadays call themselves an anarcho-capitalist, it was a similar thing that they started out you know, as a regular normal person, they yeah. had normal parents, and then they got into libertarianish ideas and realized, oh yeah, there's no re we don't need to have government funding of schools. You don't yeah. need the government to deliver first class letters. Yeah. The, the, the roads, and yeah. then probably the last thing or two is like military defense and the police and legal system. Yes. So, do you do you have a th thoughts on you know why most people don't go the, that full 
you know, way. Yeah. Do you think that's because there really is something qualitative or just that, oh, they don't have the courage of their convictions and if you no. see why it makes sense to privatize no, I, think, I think there are good arguments on both sides. That, okay. that my father's view was that the system I described might work but probably wouldn't. Mm-hmm. My view was that it probably would work but might not. Uh, I <laughs> spend parts of the third edition of Machinery discussing how the system might break down. I was discussing really three different problems. One mm-hmm. of them is the problem of national defense. And I sketch out ways you might be able to manage it, but there's no guarantee because national defense really is a, a pure public good. We have mm-hmm. ways of producing public goods privately, but none of the, the the nice thing about the ordinary market situation is that if something is worth producing, it'll get produced. People might make mistakes, but if everybody right. acts rationally correctly, if something is worth producing, it gets produced. If it's not worth producing, it's not, it doesn't get produced. That's not true of public goods. Uh, mm-hmm. uh, and public good being for the non-economists, a good such that the person producing it can't control who gets it. So if you produce it at all, it's available to a pre-existing group of people. So a radio broadcast is an obvious example of public good. But radio broadcasts are, in fact, produced privately. Right. That's because some unknown genius thought up a kludge. He thought up a clever way, namely producing two public goods, one of which has a positive cost of production and a positive value to the consumer, and you call that a radio program. And one of them has a negative cost of production and a negative value to the consumer. You call that an advertisement. You produce both of them, tie them tightly together, and give away the package. And it's got a negative cost of production because the company will pay you to put on the ads. Mm-hmm. So that's that, that particular public good got produced in that way. And there are other public goods that get produced in other ways. But unlike the ordinary private good, there is no reason to be confident that if it's worth producing, it will get produced. National defense is a pure public good. It is entirely possible that it will be worth producing and won't get produced. And if that happens, we collapse because somebody invades us Mm -hmm. and conquers us. So that's one Mm -hmm. problem. And I've discussed ways you might do it, but not that I'm sure you could do it. Second is the problem, the internal problem of cartelization. The fact that if there are a small number of private rights enforcement agencies, they might decide that being a government is more profitable than being a firm. And they combine into a single government or else each agrees not to take the other one's customers uh, so that they, in effect, have a market sharing agreement. And then you're back with the government. It might well be a worse government than we have. That, that's the second possible problem. Uh, and when Machinery was published, it only got one good review, where my definition of a good review is a review that makes the author think. And that was by Jim Buchanan. I think that was before he was a colleague of mine. And one of the things that I try to do in the third edition of Machinery is to respond to the point he made. And unfortunately, the response involves a somewhat higher chance of the system breaking down because, well, if people are curious, they can read the relevant chapters of of Machinery. But in any case, so I'm not sure it'll work. The third problem is, in a sense, a less serious problem, but a real problem. And that's what I describe as market failure on the market for law that there are reasons why markets don't always do the right thing. And those, I think of market failure as describing situations where individual rationality doesn't produce group rationality. And public good problem is an example of that. Uh, mm-hmm. Individual would like to produce the good, but he can't get paid for it because he can't control who gets it. So he doesn't get produced, even though the value to the customer is larger than the cost of producing it. And there are a bunch of things of that sort, externalities or Another standard example of market failure. And 
market failure exists on the private market, but my argument has generally been that the circumstances that cause market failure are much more common on the political market than on the private market because market failure occurs because somebody is making a decision where either he doesn't pay the cost or he doesn't get the benefit or at least doesn't get most of the benefit. That's the normal situation on the political market, that a voter who does an intelligent job of voting shares the benefit with 300 million other Americans. Uh, Mm -hmm. A legislator who passes a good law benefits a whole lot of people. A a legislator who passes a bad law but that benefits a particular interest group can benefit from that and so forth. So my argument is not that the market always gives the right result. I think that's a mistake a lot of libertarians make to try to hand wave away problems of market failure. And the right argument is, yes, indeed, the market is imperfect, but the only alternative we have is the political system, and that's more imperfect. Right. But similarly, in the, in the, in the case of, of law, that I discuss reasons why there are some laws you should make that won't get made. And I guess the standard modern example would be air pollution. That if you think about the logic that's driving law in the in my competitive market for generating law in the system I described in machinery, it's not at all clear that there will be rules against air pollution, even if there ought to be. Global warming would be a more extreme case. As it happens, I'm dubious that global warming is really a problem, but it could be a problem. And if it mm-hmm. is a problem, it's a public good at a global level. That if I put out CO2, that affects everybody. So the question then is how serious do you think those problems are relative to the problems of market failure on the political market? And if you believe, if you say, look, market failure in the political market can't that be that bad because we're still alive. All right. So the, I should say that was one of my father's comments on machinery, that I had proved too much, that essentially mm. my arguments implied the government would work even worse than it does, But uh, which was an interesting point. But in any case, we, we, we have some evidence on how badly it works. And if you think that, with, that, that the forms of market failure that would exist on the free market are more serious, are more catastrophic, which they could be. Uh, so I think there are lots of reasons. I mean, it's not like, again, going back to our earlier discussion, it's not like economics is a set of rigorous theorems that proves what works. Right. I've spent a lot of time online in recent years on a blog called Slate Star Codex. You mentioned that in mm-hmm. our correspondence. And it, it, it's run by a, was run by a young psychiatrist who has an enormous amount of intellectual energy and a great deal of a very wide range of interests. Yeah, there's nothing like it. There there was nothing like it. Yeah, I was going to ask you, because we hit the hour mark, do you mind staying a little bit longer just to talk about this case? that's fine. Okay, yeah. What I was going to say about it Mm -hmm. is that Scott Alexander, who ran the blog, did a review of Machinery of Freedom. Right, I I read that. And his final line, which I thought was very good, was I hope this the, this system is tried somewhere far from me. Yep, yep. But he's I love right. that. We mm-hmm. don't know how how a new set of institutions will work, and I have reasons to think it would work well. So the best world is the one where somebody else tries it, and if it works badly, mm-hmm. they have a problem, and if it works well, we can imitate it. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, do but, you, on that point, do you mind me just saying because I I know no. like the Rothbardians no. listening are gonna uh, have a riot if I don't bring yes. this up. So what about I mean, do you, do you believe – because the obvious response would be something like you're worried about consequences, but no, this is a matter of justice. The, the, you know, the state officials have no right to yeah, take money that. from me to build nuclear weapons, even if it is necessary to deter the Soviets or, or what have you. Yeah. H- how do you feel about the, that? I guess 
I have two problems with that whole line of argument. Okay. I'm not entirely unsympathetic. That is, I don't mm-hmm. consider myself a utilitarian, even if some people mm-hmm. think I am. Uh, mm-hmm. And I think that moral arguments are relevant, but there are two problems with them. And the first problem is that we can't actually show, we have no way of showing people that our moral beliefs are correct. That's my, in a sense, my fundamental quarrel with Ayn Rand, that I was very interested when I came across Rand, because Rand claims to have solved the David Hume's problem, to have shown how you can derive oughts from isis. And she doesn't mm-hmm. do it. If you, I've got a mm-hmm. chapter in Machinery which goes into some detail on the argument in, in Atlas Shrugged. And every time there's a hole in her argument, she comes up with passionate oratory in order to hide the hole. Mm-hmm. But given that we can't do that, we have no answer to somebody who says, well, I don't agree with you. I don't think those, right, those are the rights. Or I think somebody yeah. really, somebody can say not implausibly, people have a right not to starve to death. All right, that's an emotionally yeah. persuasive mm-hmm. argument. If that requires that we steal some money from rich people, fine. So we don't have any good way of showing that our, our moral views are right. We do have ways, imperfect ways, but real ways of showing our economic views are right. All right, you say, look at Venezuela. That's an empirical experiment. Look at the Soviet Union under the central planning. Mm-hmm. And we can't get enough to be sure of exactly what we want. But we can, mm-hmm. we have both theoretical arguments which depend on assumptions that many people would agree are at least approximately true, like rationality, and we have empirical evidence. So that's a reason for preferring arguments from economics to arguments from moral philosophy. And the second problem is that as far as I can tell, and maybe I'm missing things, the moral philosophy either doesn't work or proves too much. And I spend a part of machinery, I think a chapter or part of a chapter in machinery or freedom, running through implications that I don't think anybody believes of uh, the hardline natural rights position. And I guess one of my examples, which I think I got from Bill Bradford, who's no longer alive, but he ran Liberty Magazine. and was a very mm-hmm. guy. I liked him a lot. Uh, and he's, he, you're, you're on the balcony of your apartment on the 10th floor of an apartment building. You somehow very carelessly fall off the balcony. Fortunately, the ninth floor apartment, there's a flagpole sticking out from his balcony and you manage to catch hold of it. Mm-hmm. And on overhand, uh, along that, that flagpole to get back to his balcony when the owner comes out and says, I don't give you permission to use my flagpole, let go. Mm-hmm. Do you think Rothbard would let go? No. I think, I think he would try to fudge up some kind of an argument to show why he doesn't have to let go, but that's because he doesn't really believe in his principles. Uh, I know Walter Block has written on this in particular. I don't know if he was responding to you or just dreamed it up on his own. Basically, Walter Block has written on every possible permutation of, of a thing that of a situation that could exist. Um, I mean, if you're saying because, like, from first principles, it's not obvious, but I mean, presumably, part of the contract of you being in an apartment building would have clauses like that. Uh, I mean, that's one way to solve it. It didn't. Suppose it didn't. Right. I mean, but I guess you could be goofy and say, that, you know, suppose the 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 apartment clause said that, you know, at 3 a.m. someone could come in and punch you in the face and say, ah, see, Rothbard didn't, you know what I'm saying? No, but Rothbard, Rothbard would, I think Rothbard would say that if I agreed to those terms, that he was allowed to punch me in the face. But I don't think he would say that if there was nothing in the, in, in the apartment contract saying any, anywhere or implying anywhere that I had a right to save myself by using your property without your permission, uh, I don't mm. think I don't think that 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 doesn't work. 
And I mean, I've, I've, I've run through a number of other examples of that right, sort. Right, right, yeah. But, and, you know, there are people who've tried. There's a book I really ought to read by somebody called Lester, a British philosopher who mm-hmm. thinks he can solve some of my problems. And I've looked at some of his mm-hmm. stuff, but not enough to make sure whether, whether he's really done it, but I don't think so. Right. Uh, and so anyway, so it seems to me that the, that, the, that, the, that the two problems with the natural rights one are it looks very nice and clean sort of in the abstract. But when you try to think about applying it, you discover that your real beliefs are not as your, even your moral beliefs are not that tidy, that you don't feel you, mm-hmm. you ought to. You feel you ought to climb in. You, if you damage his flagpole, you should owe him death and damages, but he doesn't have an absolute right. And of course, mm-hmm. in general, if you think about other parts of that argument, when people say uh, there's no way of measuring uh, costs except by people, what people are willing to, to accept. But if you really believe that, then tort law disappears. How can you right. sue somebody? Mm-hmm. So in fact, what we really believe is it's Easy, the easiest way, the most reliable way of measuring values is by market transactions that people are willing to accept. But it's not the only way. We have other approximate ways. Any firm trying to bring out a new product is trying to estimate whether people will value that product. If they couldn't do it at all, you'd never bring out any new product. So it must be that you can do it imperfectly. Similarly for the standard problem of, of interpersonal comparison of utility that we don't have a good way of doing it. We don't have a good theory about it. But nobody seriously doubts that the utility cost to me of being tortured to death is greater than the utility cost to you of stubbing your toe. And in fact, our behavior, we give gifts to people. If you really had no way of, uh, of, of, of judging interpersonal utility at all, how do you decide whether you should give uh, a donation to a random starving person or a random millionaire? And yet most of us has an opinion on which of them is a more reasonable thing to do. Even libertarians, mm-hmm. they don't believe you're obliged to help the starving people. But I think most libertarians would say, if you see somebody is starving, you can easily feed them. Of course you feed them. It's you know, a decent thing to do. And part of the reason is that we are reasonably sure that starving to death is a really bad thing to happen to you. Mm-hmm. Whereas failing to get gold plating on your on your Cadillac is not a really major thing to happen to you. Right. Uh, so so anyway, so I think a lot of these people, it, it's natural enough. I mean, it goes back to my point about economics. You simplify the world out in order to understand it, but then you have to recognize your simplifications mm-hmm. aren't entirely right. Uh, and so I spoke just real quickly on that one, and then I do want to ask you about the Slate Star Codex if yep. you have if you have time. So just for me to, you know, I, I understand what you're saying, but for me to give, go, you know, give, give what the defense would be is to yep. say there's a distinction between, yes, this sort of psychological, you know, we can use the word utility or happiness or, yep. you know, a dollar yep. means more to a homeless yep. guy than it does to yep. a billionaire. But in terms of standard economic or, you know, consumer theory to say that this bundle gives more ut- utility to that person, like that's more of a formal thing and that those terms are not, they're not the same thing. And so the the utility that we use in demand or consumer theory is not the same thing that we mean in I, everyday language. I, I distinguish in uh, fairly carefully, I think in my price theory book, between mm-hmm. utility and value. Okay. Value is utility denominated in dollars. That is utility divided by marginal utility of income. And utility is utility itself. And in fact, uh, when somebody was doing a German translation of Hidden Order, which is an attempt to essentially rewrite price theory as a book for the intelligent layman who wants to teach himself economics, 
I objected that he was using the term utility when I meant value or something of that sort. And I then discovered that I never made that distinction in hidden order. The okay. distinction was in my head and I was using the terms the same way. But in right. the, the, the textbook version of it, I'd been more careful than the, than the right, popular gotcha. version. Mm-hmm. Uh, so in, if I remember correctly, in that respect, the German translation of hidden order is a little bit better than the English version because we fixed it in the German version. <laughs> oh, okay. That's interesting. Okay, so the last thing I did want to ask you was about states. Because again, I, I mean, with all these things, yeah, I, mean, I could yeah. go on for three hours with each one. Sure. But so this one, yeah, do you mind just really quickly sure. summarizing what the situation is sure. for the listeners who don't sure. know? Sure. But first, explain yeah, yeah. why that, that blog was so amazing. Yeah. Slate Star Codex mm-hmm. was a blog run by a young psychiatrist who had enormous intellectual energy. I used to accuse him of having discovered the 36-hour day uh, <laughs> and a very wide range of interests. And he would put up an essay on something, and it might be something in his field. It might be some scientific controversy where he basically read all of the relevant articles and summarized them and critiqued them. It might be a sort of a philosophical issue or an explanation of how our culture worked or why things happened. I remember, for example, one fairly one, – one of the ones which is sort of obvious after the fact is he says that if you look at the public controversies uh, over – police killing somebody or some private individual shooting somebody who he claims is attacking him or things of that sort. Oddly enough, they all seem to be ones which are close calls. They all seem to be right. ones where you can make pretty good arguments, both that, that side A was in the right and side B was in the right. Why is that? He says, well, if it's not a close call, nobody will argue on the other side. And right. if nobody's arguing on the other side, it doesn't get any publicity. And you can't push your ideas if no one's talking about them. So therefore, mm-hmm. the ones that actually end up surfacing are ones like the – now forgetting that – but there have been two or three or maybe more than three high-profile high cases where in some of them by the time it was over, it was reasonably clear who was in the wrong. But at least initially, mm-hmm. it wasn't at all clear. So that would be one example, uh, an entirely different example. He, he looks at the question of whether Alcoholics Anonymous works. And he reports that there are people who support Alcoholics Anonymous who say, here's the scientific research that shows that it gets people off alcoholism. And there are people who oppose Alcoholics Anonymous who says, here's the scientific research that shows that it doesn't work. So he read all of the papers. And he says, in mm-hmm. fact, none of them show anything, that none of them have a decent control. Here is the way in which this paper or that paper fails to really show what it claims to show. And his mm-hmm. conclusion is that almost anything you do to persuade somebody not to be an alcoholic helps a little bit and nothing helps very much. Let me give you a third example. This is one of the old ones, but quite an interesting one. He starts out the essay by saying, looking online, I discover there are some bright people who have what look like really crazy ideas, uh, and they call themselves neo-reactionaries. So I looked around the web to see if I could find a summary in defense of their position, and I couldn't find one, so I wrote one, putting together Mm -hmm. all these pieces. If you read the rest of that essay and not the introduction, you would say he's obviously a believer in these ideas, explaining and defending them. Then later he writes a second one saying, why are they wrong? Yeah. And so he puts the one in his essays and he gets a comment thread of 500 to 1,000 comments. And and if I just interject and yeah. like, because, you know, when I would fly, you know, on my phone, I'd be going through and I would purposely save during the week if I knew I had a trip coming up, yeah. the Slate Star Codex. And because I know it, not only was it going to take a half an hour to read his post, I was going to love reading all the comments. Like yeah. the comments were very interesting, too. That's right. Part of what, what I really – I spent more, much more time on the comment threads than I did on the posts. 
especially mm-hmm. later on when he said most of the interesting things. So he kept saying some interesting things. Right. But uh, and one of my it, favorite commenters was you because that's I, partly <laughs> what I say is the commenting community mm-hmm. ranged politically from anarcho-capitalists to socialists. It mm-hmm. ranged religiously from seriously believing Catholics to atheists. It ranged professionally from a literal rocket scientist to a literal plumber who mm-hmm. posted under the name Plumber. It was a very interesting guy. I like him a lot mm-hmm. uh, with a very distorted view of the world. But he's you know, a pleasant, intelligent, willing to be disagreed with and so forth. Mm-hmm. And almost all the conversation was civil. So it was the only place I knew of online where you could actually have intelligent, civil conversations with mm-hmm. people who had very, very different views. Uh, and Can I bring up one, yeah. one more? I'm sorry, yeah. but one of my favorite posts from him, which you may remember, it was titled, You're Still Crying Wolf. And the premise was um, saying that now that Trump is in office, people are saying about, you know, remember when we called Mitt Romney a racist? Well, don't you wish we hadn't like, you know, burnt our capital or whatever? Yeah. Because now there's... Re- and we, in other words, we were calling Wolf, the boy who yeah. cried Wolf, you know, yeah. on George W. Bush and Mitt Romney, but now the real, and then Scott Alexander, and again, that's a pseudonym, his point was, no, you're still crying. And he went through point by point and showed how, you know, Trump didn't refuse to condemn the KKK, you know, all these yeah. accusations. And he was going through and saying, what are you talking about? Yeah. And Scott Alexander hates Trump's guts. Yeah. Oh, and yes. So that's what was funny that the, the best defense of Trump I had seen, because it was a long post with yeah. all kinds of links backing everything up, was from a guy who doesn't like Trump. Yeah, no, that's right. He he had, I'm not sure it was the same post or a different one, where he was arguing that Trump was in fact no more racist than other Republican major political figures, that he tries to get votes from everybody, including blacks and gays and Hispanics. Uh, mm-hmm. And I think he's right. I, I, I don't think Trump is a racist unless you define Trump's family and his supporters as one race, in which case he's a racist. <laughs> but other than that, uh, mm-hmm. no, he's a demagogue. Uh, he's not a very nice person. He's certainly not very honest. Mm-hmm. But a lot of the accusations against him aren't true. And, and of course, that's obviously one of the reasons why some people on the left don't like Scott. So Scott, in that respect, reminds me of Orwell, that Orwell was a leftist who was very mm-hmm. critical of other leftists for good reasons, mostly. Mm-hmm. And Scott clearly identifies as a leftist, blue tribe, he would say. But he also thinks there are a lot of things wrong with the present left. And he therefore criticizes them. Yeah. Uh, and that offends many people uh, on the left. So any case, it, w- it was a wonderful community. It may come back into existence, I hope, but we don't know. Uh, but what happened was that a New York Times reporter called up various people or got emailed various people, including me, to interview about about the blog. And I talked to him for half an hour or so. He seemed like a nice fellow. It sounded as though he was probably going to give a reasonably friendly article on the blog. And it's very possible he would have. We don't know. But when he talked, when, when he, he didn't talk to Scott, I think he, he emailed, exchanged with Scott. Mm-hmm. And Scott posts under a pseudonym. The pseudonym is his first and his middle name, but not his last name. And the reporter said he was going to be giving Scott's real name in the article. And Scott said, please don't. And Scott explained why he didn't want him to. And there are basically two reasons. The first reason is that Scott is a psychiatrist. Apparently, it's part of ordinary psychiatric practice that you don't want your your patients to know you outside of the patient-doctor relationship. And that mm-hmm. he thought that it would seriously interfere with his practice if patients knew he is the person who writes this particular blog. They could read his opinions on it. 
And as he mm-hmm. says, his patients range politically entirely across the map. So some of them, in fact, probably all of them would disagree with something on the blog if they if they right. actually read it. And so he felt that if his not a real name was was well known, that that would make it very hard to practice his profession. He might even get fired by his hospital for what he would regard as legitimate reasons. Mm-hmm. And the second reason was that there are people who hate him. And that's clearly the case. You can see that occasionally online. And that's one of them might come up and try to kill him. And as he says, you know, I live in a house with a bunch of housemates, including, I think, a three-month-old baby, if I remember correctly, and I don't want to put me and them at risk. Now, to be fair, Scott's real name is not very hard to find. Mm-hmm. That he, he, There are a number of things he did mostly before he, he started his Late Star Codex, by which if you're sort of part of that, of that social group, as it were, you can work out the links and figure out that he must be so-and-so. Mm-hmm. as obviously the reporter successfully did. I mean, I knew Scott's real name. Mm-hmm. So in a sense, the case is quite as strong as if he'd really had secure anonymity. But his view, which I think is probably right, is that there's a big difference between if a patient gets curious and uh, and, and, and tries to do research about the, his psychiatrist, he could find this. And it's in the New York Times where people are very, very likely to come across it. So anyway, his position was that he very much didn't want that and uh, wasn't willing to go along with the interview if he didn't. And the uh, reporter said, well, I'm sorry, but I've checked with my editor and it's New York Times policy that if we have a story about you, we have to give you a real name, which turned out to be a lie. That is, I don't know about the policy, it does not describe what they've done in the past. Right, right, because they they ran that thing about from a Trump insider, you know. They've done a variety of things with different reasons. Uh, I think Mm -hmm. the closest was a left-wing podcast, I think, where they uh, gave only the official name, uh, you know, the pseudonym or whatever, the person who put it up Mm -hmm. and not his real name. But there have been a number of other cases where it's clear. Mm -hmm. So they may well have a policy that they prefer to give the name, but are willing not to if there's good reason. And Scott had given good reasons. So when the guy said, and, and by the way, just to justify, he wasn't just being paranoid. Like he earlier had to take his name off. Like he was the moderator or co-moderator, or like a subreddit or something. This happened like a yeah. year ago. Yeah, where I, did, he had I, to, I did not follow all of that in detail. Okay, I know well, well, just, I'll, I'll be real quick. But yeah. there, what happened was, and I might be botching some of the details, but the yeah. spirit of what I'm saying is for sure correct. Where Scott was the moderator on some Reddit or subreddit. I don't do Reddit, so I don't know how the terminology. And he had to just bow out and remove himself from it because- People like what what he did there was, um, you know, they, they get into awkward situations where like what if somebody was posting things and everyone knew the person was a white supremacist. But what he was saying was, you know what I mean? It was getting into weird like yeah. moderating decisions yeah. and they would come up with a rule that they thought was fair. But then, you know, it would just be awkward because they want to just be making one off decisions case by yeah. case. And so then people who hated Scott's guts would go around and anything he was a participant, even some altruistic effort or whatever – they would contact the organizers and say, do you know you have an apologist for Nazis? You know yep. what I mean? When clearly that's not what yep. he was. He's, yep. he's a progressive. Yes. And so he just kind of had to professionally remove himself from a lot of things because this yep. group that hated his guts would yep. follow him around and dox him and do all this yep. stuff. Yep. Yep. So that's the kind of yep. mentality you know, he's dealing with. Yep. I, yeah, I, I didn't feel, follow that, that stuff at the time. Mm-hmm. But in any case, I don't know. My, my wife has worried for like 30 years that somebody I offended online would heave a brick through our window. Right, and it okay. never happened. Uh, uh-huh. And I think that people are much more willing 
to be very hostile when they aren't physically present and are sort of reasonably invisible themselves. Right. But nonetheless, it seems to me that it was a not a not absurd worry that somebody who knew his name and identity mm. who wouldn't have known it otherwise, because obviously somebody mm. who really hates him is enterprising going to figure out who he is. But that if everybody knew it because of the, of the New York Times, that that increased the odds that some one person, some one slightly mm. nutty person would in fact try to shoot him or or mm. attack it one way or another. Anyway, so, so so his solution was he just took the Slate Star Codex down. So now that, that thing is down. gone and it's just like a, a pinned post saying what oh, happened. It's gone. It, you can find the old stuff if you're reasonably sophisticated using, I think, archive.com, if I remember correctly, mm-hmm. is where I found it. So if you want to read what it used to be and you have reasonable experience of searching the web, it's still findable. Mm-hmm. But it is not findable by following its own links, as it were. Uh, right. And – and I don't. the The article hasn't come out yet. Uh, mm-hmm. There was a New Yorker article, which came out a few days ago, about the blog and about the controversy. Mm-hmm. And I thought it was much better than I would have expected from the New Yorker. That is, it was clear that the author himself identified with progressivism and had mm-hmm. sympathy with some of the criticisms of the blog. But in general, I would say it was a pretty friendly article and gave, you know, made Scott sound like an interesting person, which he is, and like a nice person, which he is, and the blog like an interesting mm-hmm. phenomenon, even if you had some reservations about the fact that they allowed people with evil ideas to, to talk on it. Right. And it did not give Scott's name. Mm-hmm. I am hoping that that one result of the New York of, of the New Yorker article was that the New York Times won't bother to run an article because they've been preempted already. Right, right. And so, and I'm hoping that if it turns out that the New York Times either is willing to change its view on his name or to, or just decide not to run the article, that the blog will come back again. Right. At this point, there is that I think a couple of places online where Slate Sarcotics people have been sort of reconvening. Mm-hmm. And the one that I've been looking at is something called Data Secrets Locks, which turns out to be an anagram of either Slate Star Codex or Scott Alexander. I'm not sure which. I haven't worked it out yet. But if you look up Data Secrets Locks, all one word, that's now a bulletin board kind of thing where a bunch of, though nothing like all of the active posters are now interacting. And so I've been interacting there. And I think that Beans, who was one of the active posters, who's a naval history enthusiast and has his own Mm -hmm. blog about naval history. And I think he's also been hosting, uh, I believe, some of the Slate Star Codex people talking there. So Mm -hmm. it doesn't come back. We will probably end up with many of the participants in the conversation talking with each other, but Scott probably isn't going to be part of it, and he won't be putting up his essays. But I'm hoping that it will, in fact, come back. Now, I should say, mm-hmm. eliminating Slate Star Codex is not a wholly bad thing. I have a lot more free time than I used to. Sure. <laughs> right. Well, th- th- what I wanted to ask you that was, because on that, it's not clear, like, that outcome seems crazy, and yet it's not clear when you try to figure out, well, who's the bad guy, or what's the... I mean, so clearly, like people making death threats and stuff. Because, yep. and, and I believe Scott when he was saying, "No, I do, I get death threats yes. from people." The, the, those are bad, but it's not clear like which institutional policy. It's kind of like with yes. Twitter and you know, I don't know how much you do yes. any of that stuff, I don't uh, do David, Twitter on social media. But there is this issue where libertarians were in a weird spot where it does seem like you know, for example, some guy who has views that you know they're called alt right. And he's clearly not a Nazi. He's not, you know, yep. a white racialist person. Yep. But he's edgy and he has some bad jokes, maybe. 
and Twitter and, and YouTube and whatever just decide, boom, you're done. So yes, they're private companies. They have the right to do it. But yeah, it does feel like because they have such high profile platforms yeah. that, so anyway, I'm just wondering but, your but thoughts there, on that there, kind of there stuff. There are lots of, of bad mm-hmm. things people can do that aren't in violation of libertarian principles. Right, right, right. I mean, to take the simplest example, there are people I have interacted with who are making arguments that I believe are dishonest. Mm-hmm. Well, if they don't literally lie about the facts, if they only lie about the conclusions or the argument or whatever, I don't think I have grounds to sue them, but I wish they wouldn't mm-hmm. do that. Right. And I mean, if you go to my blog, which is now revived some because I'm no longer spending all my time on Slate Star Codex, uh, <laughs> I'm actually thinking uh, I'd run out of books to write. And I've decided that what I may do is to go through my, what I'm in the process of doing is to go through my blog posts, of which there are a huge number. I'm now guessing that my blog must add up to a million words or so. I haven't actually calculated mm-hmm. it, but mm-hmm. uh, I'm going to go through, classify them as to here are a bunch of posts on the same general topic, put them together into a chapter and do a book that way. Maybe that's my present plan at least. But but you can find, if you look at my blog examples, uh, some of them are in climate, but some of them are in other issues where it seems mm-hmm. to me that people are being either intentionally or e- either intentionally dishonest or just not seeing what's wrong with their own argument. That, that I had an exchange with, with regard to a, libertarian we both know but who i'm not going to name who wrote an article which i concluded was dishonest and the Mm -hmm. reason i thought it was dishonest was that there was an argument that he brought in at the second half of his essay where where it supported his point but exactly the same argument undercut the point he was making in the first half of his essay and he never mentioned it there Mm -hmm. and i regarded that as dishonest and i mentioned it to a Another libertarian who knows both of us, and he said, I was just overestimating how smart the guy was. That guy said you were overestimating that the, right. the, the, the author the, the, was the, not the, intentionally the, dishonest. The, the he just didn't realize he just hadn't the internal inconsistency. The yeah. Same argument undercut the thing. Mm-hmm. So so there's some of that. But there are other cases where mm-hmm. I just find it very, very hard. I mean, I, I've argued mm-hmm. with people. There are two cases where I argued with somebody moderately prominent on my blog, and it seemed to me that there was a point at which I was showing that on, that on part of what he was saying, he was wrong. He, well, in one case, not that he was wrong, but that he was unwilling to accept the implication of the argument he was making, and he just avoided right. it. Uh, so at that point, I figured there's some element. But, but none of that ought to be something I could sue people for. I just argue with them. So there are mm-hmm. going to be lots. And similarly, I think that if Facebook wants to refuse to allow libertarians to go on it, they're entitled to do that. I hope they don't. Uh, they haven't gone that mm-hmm. far yet. But And similarly, I think the New York Times, as far as I can tell, is entitled to post an article which has Scott's crew name on it. Uh, I think some of the people on Slate Star Codex thought they were deliberately trying to get him, but my guess mm-hmm. is not. That is my guess from talking to the reporters. The reporter really didn't have anything particularly against the blog. He just thought it was very interesting, which it is. Uh, mm-hmm. But he was being not malicious, but irresponsible. That's at least my interpretation of what's going on is that he believed correctly that it would be a somewhat more interesting article if he identified Scott's real identity. He didn't take very seriously the fact that it would impose very large costs on Scott. Mm-hmm. And he was more interested, like most of us, you know, he's, he's being selfish, like most of us, he wants to accomplish his ends. And if that happens to step on other people's toes, well, that's too bad. He'd rather not step on their toes, but tough luck. Right. So anyway, that would be my interpretation of what he did. And I think he's entitled to do that. I just wish he wouldn't. Yeah, yeah. So. <laughs> 
Okay, well, um, thank you. I wish probably wrap up at this point because I've right. taken a lot of your time. Um, so everyone, my guest has been uh, Dr. David Friedman. For links for all the stuff we talked about, I'll go to go to bobmurphyshow.com slash 134. Uh, Dr. Friedman, thanks so much for your time. Thank you. It was a lot of fun. Bye-bye. You've just experienced another episode of The Bob Murphy Show, the podcast promoting free markets, free minds, and grateful souls. For more information and to subscribe to this podcast, visit bobmurphyshow.com.